0: Okay, last week we were in the middle of a quick discussion of the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. And I want to finish that up before we jump into the new material for today. You remember going over this? And we're going to go through this really quickly. I don't think we have any Arminians in the room at this point. Maybe I've scared them all away. (laughs) Could be. Okay. Depravity. Arminians say that as a result of the fall, man inherits a corrupt nature, but prevenient grace, which God bestows on everybody, according to that view, removes the guilt and the condemnation of Adam's sin, and therefore, the individual is only responsible for his own sin. That's what Arminians say. Okay? Calvinists say that as a result of the fall, man is totally depraved. He is totally dead in sin. He cannot save himself. And this includes both the guilt that is imputed from Adam and his own guilt. And therefore, God must initiate salvation. <laughs> Calvinist view is correct. I'm going to say this in almost every case. Okay? (coughs) Imputation of sin. The Arminian says that God does not impute Adam's sin to the race, even though all men inherit a corrupt sin nature from Adam. Calvinist view is that Adam's sin is imputed to the race by God. Now again, the Calvinist view is correct. Federal headship, which Arminians deny is true and seminal headship which Calvin, Calvinists emphasize is also true. They're both true as I understand it. Adam's sin is both legally imputed to the race and genetically passed on to the race. Questions? You all with me? Okay. I think we did that one last week. Election... The Arminians say that God elected those whom he knew would believe of their own free will. So election is conditional. It's based on God's advanced perception of man's faith response. Now, if that is not salvation by merit, I don't know what is. But that's their view. Calvinists say that God unconditionally elected some to be saved, and election is not in any way based on man's response. Now, the Calvinist view is correct, and when Paul speaks of God foreseeing in the book of Romans, he's not talking about foresight as in evaluation ahead of time. He's talking about foresight as in setting his gaze upon someone sovereignly and saying that's the one I want to save, quite apart from his merit. If you, un- if you deny unconditional election, ultimately, you undermine God's sovereignty. Because if man is sovereign in one thing, then God is not sovereign. You, you really, if you think about it, you can't have a universe full of beings who share sovereignty. Shared sovereignty doesn't work, does it? You know, It's the old thing, what do you do when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? the answer is it doesn't make any sense right somebody's got to be God and everybody else has to be subservient to his sovereignty otherwise it it just doesn't make sense okay the extent of the atonement I'm going to hit this one really quickly because we'll come back to it the Arminians say that Christ died for the entire human race to make all men savable although they do not say that everyone gets saved. A Calvinist says, why did I put that in brackets? God determined that Christ would die only for the elect, since all of the elect are saved. His death is completely successful. Okay. The reason I put this in brackets is that there there are some Calvinists who disagree with this and who actually hold this position. And I'm one of them. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. (laughs) Okay, very quickly, unlimited atonement seems to be biblically correct, though it is not logically... Did I get that right? Though not logically... uh, Scratch that. That doesn't make sense. (laughs) I made a mistake when I wrote that, and I don't want to try to unravel it now. We're coming back to this. I've got a whole bunch of slides on the extent of the atonement. Okay? All right, next one. Grace. The Arminian believes in prevenient grace which reverses the effect of Adam's sin and makes all men able to cooperate with God. If you don't believe, it's your fault. Okay? Now, in a sense, the Calvinist would agree with that, but he wouldn't agree with the idea that you have a choice apart from the acting of God's Holy Spirit. Calvinist says that common grace is extended to all, but irresistible grace is extended only to the elect. Now, this is sometimes called effectual grace. Okay? I like effectual grace better because irresistible sounds like God twisting your arm. And God never twists anybody's arm. But when God applies irresistible grace, what's the result going to be? You're going to get saved right god never applied irresistible grace to anybody who didn't respond by believing okay the calvinist view is correct there is no such thing as prevenient grace in scripture the armenians made this up they made this up to give an explanation consistent with their presupposition which is that if god says if you believe you will be saved, that means that you have a free will to make the choice. And that presupposition or that postulate is false. We do not have free will before we're saved. Our wills are, in the, ter- in the terms of Luther, in bondage. When it says that there's a veil over our eyes, that the God of this age has blinded our minds... We have no choice, in a sense. Who's um, What was position? Uh, Who's position? Luther. Um, how, how would he line up with. Uh, Luther was God. here. Luther was very much here. Okay. He believed in the bondage of the will. Yes. Did, overall, was he and Luther? Was Luther <clears throat> line up overall? Was no, they don't, they don't line up on everything, but they're pretty close. Now, Calvin historically <coughs> followed Luther by a bit. Oh, so some things were developed a little further. Luther had a lot more Roman Catholic theology in him. Well, Calvin... It shows in the,
1: uh, in
0: the sure. It shows in their liturgy. It shows in the practice of infant baptism. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But in this area, I mean... Luther was one of the ones who emphasized this whole thing, and this is really where he began to break with the Roman Catholic Church, because the Roman Catholic Church essentially held this view. They were semi-Pelagian, which is essentially the same as Arminian. Okay, man's will, prevenient grace, frees every man's will. I think this is kind of a, a duplicate. Calvinist says that total depravity means that Unregenerate man's will is in bondage to sin. Okay. Talk about free will. I, I saw a reference on the internet, researching. I saw a reference LFW. I figured the F W had to do with free will. L F. Limited. It's probably limited free will or something like that. They use it as if I was supposed to know what it was supposed to mean. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. Okay, perseverance and security. Arminians, because of their emphasis on man's free will, argue that a believer can turn from grace and lose his salvation. Calvinists, because they believe that salvation is initiated by God and because God is sovereign in salvation, argue that believers will persevere in their faith because God is at work to keep them. absolutely now the Arminian can say well nobody can snatch you out but you can jump out
1: <laughs> that's what they'll say
0: but I don't think I don't think that fits what the Lord is saying you know he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it um, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30 whom he called etc etc and it goes through the whole process and it ends up with glorification so you know think of salvation think of the process of redemption as a conveyor belt if God puts you on one end of it, you are going to reach the other end of it. You know, once He starts the process, it cannot be interrupted. Second um, Corinthians five seventeen: If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a decisive change that occurs when regeneration <laughs> happens. And you stop being what you were and you become something which you could not have been before. And just as we were powerless to carry ourselves across that transition, we are powerless to reverse the process and go back. You know there, there's a passage in the Old Testament where it says, "Can the leopard change his spots?" The answer is no. And it works both ways, right? God has the power to make alive, and only God has the power. To take spiritual life away, and he never takes it away once he gives it to a redeemed person. Okay, the sovereignty of God. The Arminian would say that God limits his control of men in accordance with man's freedom. His decrees regarding salvation are subject to his foreknowledge. This is, by the way, a very Renaissance Enlightenment concept, isn't it? And Arminianism was developed in response to Calvinism in the time of the Renaissance, basically, you know, between 1500 and now. Um, (coughs) It's really not a biblically based system. Calvinist says that God's sovereignty and salvation, as in all other matters, is absolute and unconditional. His foreknowledge concerns advanced planning, not advanced knowledge. That's kind of a helpful way to think of it. Okay? And we've said that already. Alright, some final comments. Calvinism developed early in the Reformation. It's based on scriptural teaching regarding the sovereignty of God, <coughs> Calvinism's usual emphasis on limited atonement is logically consistent with, but catch this phrase, this is what I was trying to say before, but not logically necessitated by the emperor mm. emphasis on sovereign election. To put it away, although limited atonement seems more logically efficient in view of sovereign election, Unlimited atonement is just as logically compatible with sovereign election as is limited atonement. Does that make sense? Now, I, you may not agree with it, but does it make sense? Okay. What I'm saying is this. God was perfectly free <coughs> even knowing exactly who the elect were and knowing their finite numbers. He was free if he so chose, to have the Son atone for the sins of all. Now, it's generally argued that it's much more efficient to have limited atonement to fit with limited election. We never talk about limited election. That's kind of a redundantly redundant statement. But limited atonement fits with limited election nicely. But there's no logical problem having limited election and unlimited atonement. Okay, And that's remember I showed you that chart with the order of the decrees a while back? And I showed you that you could have unlimited atonement all the way across the board. But you had to have unlimited atonement if you were either a sublapsarian or an Arminian. Remember that? That's basically what I'm saying here. I can pull that chart up again if we need it. Now, Arminianism was a response to Calvinism, and it was aimed at denying the offensive doctrines of election and reprobation. Anybody remember what reprobation is? That certain people were designed for God's way. Okay, exactly. Reprobation is the doctrine that certain people were chosen for God's wrath. It's also called preterition. It's the idea that everybody falls into one of two elect categories, the ones who are elect to be saved and the ones who are elect to be damned. Now, strong Calvinists talk about both of those categories. That's generally called hyper-Calvinism. Most Calvinists talk about election and salvation and don't talk about election to damnation, because while this one, the election to salvation, is stated clearly in Scripture, the election to damnation is only hinted at. It's never stated, okay? It's strongly hinted at in Romans chapter 9, and it's hinted at in 2 um, Peter and Jude, but the emphasis in in Scripture is overwhelmingly on election unto salvation. Now, the Arminians didn't like that. They found this idea offensive. And so they came up with a contrary approach to salvation that emphasized man's free will and his intellectual independence at a time when these... That's supposed to be were, not were were highly valued and emphasized. Yes, that's supposed to be were, not were. Okay. now the evaluation. Calvinism is biblically correct. Arminianism is really a humanistic reaction to Calvinism. And Arminianism is, in many ways, a return to the semi-Pelagianism, the idea that man is not really totally fallen that permeated Roman Catholic theology at the time of the Reformation. It's, kind of, it's a reactionary kind of theology. In, in a way, it undoes some of what the Reformers did. But, you know, we need to be fair to Arminians. Arminians still believe in salvation by grace through faith. I don't think Arminians are heretics. I think they're wrong, but... <laughs> <clears throat> Why? Why is it that the I'm I'm, I'm making an assumption here. I know Methodists as well. Sure. Why is it that the Wesleyans took up um, evangelism as opposed to Calvinists? Well, there was a perception, and and it pers- it persists today. There's a perception that Calvinists will not be as zealous in evangelism as Arminians. And the idea is that Calvinists will say, since God has already determined who, is, who the elect are, and since it will happen that the elect will believe, we don't really have to work that hard to get the gospel to them because it's going to happen anyway. And I'm just guessing here, but I know the Wesleys were very zealous evangelistically. And maybe that was the result of their Arminian theology or maybe their Arminian theology was sort of helped along by their zeal for evangelism. I really don't know the answer. Um, but but interestingly, a, an enthusiastic Calvinist should be as evangelistically active as an enthusiastic Arminian. Now, the motivations are a little bit different. Okay, An Arminian may go out saying, if I don't preach the gospel to this person, this person's going to go to hell. The Calvinist will go out saying, that person may be elect, but in order for him to get saved, he has to hear the gospel, so I need to preach the gospel to him to find out whether he's elect. In either case, it takes effort. Um, So, you know, it's really not true that a Calvinist will necessarily be less evangelistic. I know you weren't saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I was just going to say sort of proof of that is one of the great evangelistic churches in the past were the Presbyterians. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, history shows that there's really not that much difference. And in the Armenian where did they put the Holy Um Now, yeah, that's a good question. Arminians emphasize this prevenient grace idea, and they would argue that that is bestowed by the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of sprinkled over the whole world, whereas a Calvinist would say it's a laser gun. <sniffs> Skip you, <sniffs> like that. Um, they both recognize the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but I don't think that Arminians they don't have a concept of irresistible grace, and they don't really picture the Holy Spirit targeting individuals in that way. Now, what they do do, however, is Arminians often have an elevated view of the role of the Holy Spirit after salvation. Because most Pentecostals, um, most people who have sort of a higher ground theology are Arminians. And that comes in because of their belief that if you work hard, you'll get a special ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then if you sin, you sort of drive the Holy Spirit off. And that you know, that kind of ties in with this whole human responsibility, I've got to make it happen kind of an idea. Calvinists tend to be sort of more even keel on the ministry of the Holy Spirit In that sense, they don't have this elevated role of the Holy Spirit after salvation or the possibility of losing that. Other questions? Does that make any sense? Okay. All right. Now, let's jump to the next. Here we are. Okay, this is the new material for this week. Okay, we're going to talk briefly about the nature of election. This is just going to be a quick review because we've talked about this a lot. We're going to talk about the extent of the atonement, and then we're going to talk about regeneration. Okay, we've already covered this. Biblical doctrine of election is pretemporal sovereign election. Now, some common ejection, uh, objections to pretemporal election are that it implies double predestination or preterition. We are just talking about that, right? It doesn't have to imply that. It could be that God says, this one, this one, this one, this one, these are elect, and I am going to apply the ministry of the Holy Spirit to these people. I will bring them out of spiritual darkness. I will bring them to faith. I will save them. I will bring them through the whole process, and I will glorify them. And God doesn't say anything in particular about the other ones. And they just go where they were going to go, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay? So it does not necessarily imply this. Okay? But that's one of the objections that's often made. Okay, the second objection is that pretemporal election is fatalistic. Now, fatalism has to do with blind chance. Okay, I don't think that Calvinists believe in blind chance at all. What do they believe in? Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. That's not blind chance. That's actually that's grace. Okay, that's a personal choice, very much at work. Now, the other thing to think about is that fatalism is mostly concerned with how things turn out. Okay. Um, An Armenian objecting to pre-temporal election will say, "Well, no matter what I do, I'm going to end up in the same way." And a Calvinist will say, "No, that's not true. What you do between now and the end of your life does matter, and God has foreordained not only the outcome but the process that you will go through." And He will say, "Do you want to be saved?" And if the person says, I want to be saved, then you say, well, then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe, you will be saved. When you get to the end of your life, you will see that God ordained the sequence of events that led up to your believing as well as the fact that you would be saved. So, Glenn, you're going to say something. Well, I mean, it, you know, we, we need to sort of get out of this idea that all that matters is how it turns out. And we need to get out of the idea that just because God has said it will turn out that way means that I don't have any role. I have a big role, don't I? I need to believe in order to be saved. You know, a Calvinist recognizes that no one will ever get to heaven who didn't believe. So this objection really isn't isn't a fair objection. Okay? Now the last one, is that pre-temporal election removes human freedom. Now, it's true that nobody can resist God. But it's also true that nobody upon whom the Holy Spirit has acted ever wants to resist God. You know, if, if God shows you that you're on your way to hell, and he says, here's my son, all you have to do is believe in him, and I'm going to make you my child, and I'm going to give you a resurrection body, and you're going to have a wonderful future with me. Nobody says no. Nobody wants to say no. So, while you know, while the illustration of the potter and the clay is true, right? God can do what he wants to with his creation. I don't think any piece of clay that God ever picked up and put on the wheel and said, I'm going to make you my son. I don't think any piece of clay said, get your dirty hands off of me. I want to go to hell. I don't think that's ever happened. Right? And we really, I think we really need to view it that way. Um, again, if we really understand what grace is and if we really understand how desperately lost we are we stop making these kinds of objections. Okay, now let's talk about the extent of the atonement. And let's try to keep our tempers. I'll try to keep mine. Okay, there are basically two positions on the extent of the atonement. The first one, I'm sorry this is so small, is that Christ died in order to make provision for the salvation of all people Now, this is called unlimited atonement, and I've abbreviated it as UA. The second view is that Christ died in order to make provision for the salvation of the elect only. This is the limited atonement, or LA, view. The limited atonement view is also called particular redemption and particular atonement, if you've ever seen those terms. The unlimited view is also called general redemption and general atonement. Okay, you'll see these terms used kind of interchangeably. Now, before we jump into the evidence, let's clarify some issues, and I hope we can all agree on these things, okay? Unlimited atonement does not necessarily imply universalism because we all understand That nobody who doesn't believe will ever get saved. Okay? All right, secondly, the elect are just as unsaved as the non elect. Now, this is one that the Arminians tend to get wrong. Okay? They tend to look at Calvinists and say, You stuck up Calvinists, you think you're better because you're elect. Of course, we can look at the Arminians and say, You stuck up Arminian, you think you're better because God figured out that you would believe if you heard the gospel. You know, we could shoot arrows at each other all way, all both ways all night. But really, the elect are just as unsaved as the non elect. The third one, faith is necessary to salvation in both views. We all agree on this, right? Now, this one's a little tricky statements in scripture that seem to indicate something like Christ died for the elect and there are many such statements do not prove limited atonement any more than saying I like poodles means that I don't like German shepherds okay if there's a statement in scripture that says Christ died for the elect it doesn't mean Christ didn't die for the non-elect you follow that? It's just simple logic. So it will not do to find a bunch of statements in Scripture that say Christ died for the elect to prove limited atonement. It may be part of a proof, but it's not sufficient. Okay, fifth, and this is important. The issue is not an issue of orthodoxy, and it doesn't necessitate a different approach to ministry. Okay? I don't care which view you hold, really, in an ultimate sense, whether you hold a limited atonement or unlimited atonement, you're still my brother or sister in Christ. You're still going to share the gospel in the same way. Um, You know, The lack of omniscience on our part means that we don't have any way to go out and say, that guy's elect, that lady's elect, skip that one, she's not, and just share the gospel with the first two, right? Can't do it. How do we find out if somebody's elect? (laughs) (laughs) Tommy. I love it. Yes. He has a special gift. It really does. You share the gospel and find out how they respond. Now, of course, if you share the gospel and they don't respond, you don't really know that they're non-elect yet, do you? because you might just be planting seeds, and somebody else might see them respond. But if they do respond, you do know they are elect, Okay. Now, the last thing that I'd like to say is we should not allow logical considerations, particularly the idea of efficiency, to override clear statements of Scripture. And this is how I would illustrate this. If we're willing to live with the logical tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and we are, aren't we, then if necessary, we should be willing to live with the logical tension between unlimited atonement and the salvation only of the elect. Now, I'm not saying that I've proved this. I'm just saying that if we can do it in the one case, if the biblical evidence requires it we can do it in the other case and in fact the limited atonement one is a whole lot easier isn't it it's much harder to reconcile God's sovereignty and our responsibility and our sense that we make choices than it is to reconcile unlimited atonement with the salvation of the elect only you're with me Okay, now, arguments for limited atonement. I've got all the arguments for limited atonement on one page and all the arguments for unlimited atonement on another page. Most of this is in your notes, but I've kind of reorganized it, so it won't look quite the same. Okay, there are a number of statements in Scripture that Christ came to die for his people. Now, on the surface, that would seem to suggest... That It's a statement that he died for the elect. However, unless it says he didn't die for the non-elect, that's not conclusive. Now, it may be a piece of evidence, but it's not a conclusive piece of evidence. There are a number of statements that say that Christ died for the church. Now, everybody in the church is elect, right? Okay, so this is very much like this one. There are statements in Scripture that Christ's intercessory work is only for believers, and some have argued that if his intercessory work is only believers, then we should expect that his atoning work is only for believers. But that doesn't really follow, does it? Okay. Now, it's been argued that the concept of a ransom automatically frees those for whom it is paid. And I think that is correct if all that's going on is a ransoming. But in the big picture of the atoning work of Christ, it's not just ransom, is it? We've got ransom, we've got substitution, sacrifice, we've got propitiation, and we've got... What's the fourth one? It's another R. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Okay? Now, if there are four things going on in the atoning work of Christ, then it may be that one of those... Limits unlimited atonement from going to unlimited salvation. And that's what we're going to see. Okay, but again, you put these together and you seem to have a pretty good argument for limited atonement. Now, one argument, and this is a big one for unlimited atonement, is that it's illogical and wasteful to say that Christ died for some whom God had not elected to salvation. Now, when people say this, no, well, I was just going to say just the opposite, actually. Okay, I think when people say this, they're saying this out of reverence for Christ. Okay, I think what they're saying is that because Christ is who he is, I expect everything that he does to be effective and to be successful. And I think that's a good argument, but I think it's a false application of the argument. Because I would respond to this by saying Christ dying for the non-elect actually accomplishes something. And I would say that it accomplishes a demonstration of the preciousness of his person and of the overabundance of God's grace. Okay? But having said that, I respect people who say this because I understand what they're saying. Okay. Now, Question, okay. Going to the waste one no logic. From a human sense, okay, God is not always the most sufficient. Absolutely. In fact, just the opposite isn't isn't it? I mean, God delights in providing an overabundance of many things. He's not stingy, is he? So, again, without insulting those who, who make this argument, there's another way to look at it, which is to say that the overabundance of God's grace, the overabundance of his provision actually glorifies him. Okay. Now, I may have left an argument off of this, and that would be the argument, um, let me see how I can say it, that there is an injustice committed when Christ dies for somebody and that person goes to hell. Now, did I put this up here? I don't think I did, okay? There's an argument that says that if, let's say I'm non-elect. Christ died for me. I go to hell. My sins get paid for twice. Therefore, God is unjust. Because sin should only be paid for once. And the answer to that is that I only pay for my sin once, and if God chooses to pay for it an extra time, the only one who is cheated is him, but he is the one who chose to do that freely so nobody's cheated. Mary Everybody would have come out. Well that's that's not what they're well, saying not, though. Not applied, but, but okay. For everyone, you know, Uh huh. then we would expect everyone to be saved, right? Yeah, then uh, but but what I'm saying is in 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 the Okay, Well, and, th- and that's, that's the argument that I was just talking about. And, and, and you're right, okay? But the, the answer to that, I think, first of all, is that God's legal system allows for this kind of thing to be done. And secondly, that in the case of the non-elect, their sin is never paid for more than once by them. So, you know, we've got this strange kind of system, and it doesn't exist anywhere else, where the lawgiver and the judge and the payer of the penalty are all God. Now, what's really interesting is that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, what God did was he set up a visible precedent for substitution, okay? the whole thing, all those goats and lambs that were sacrificed through all of history were really only done for one purpose and that is to illustrate something ahead of time to get that whole idea in the psyche of man that one could pay for the sin of another and that it could only be done when the one who paid was innocent. And Christ comes along and he's the one who does that. Now, our legal systems don't allow for substitution. You know, if if, uh, if I murder somebody, my brother can't go to jail or to the electric chair for me. But God's system does allow it. And uh, you know, that's what makes it so difficult to deal with this. But I think we need to look at the biblical precedents as we think about this. Bob. There's also the idea that we don't receive that forgiveness of, that gift of forgiveness. We don't, even though it is done for us. Its benefits it's are not, not applied to us. us. It's not benefited to us until we accept it. Absolutely. And so, and that it's not being paid twice. Exactly. That you didn't accept it. And that, yeah, what you're talking about, what you're really saying is that reconciliation, and, and We may not get to this tonight, but the key to understanding this whole thing is the nature of biblical reconciliation. Can we have about five more minutes? Okay. All right, let's look at the flip side. Okay? There are a number of statements in Scripture that say Christ died for the sins of the world. Okay? And some of these are particularly strong. Um, 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. You know, that one's, this one's hard to get around. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And, you know, the us and the whole world is Pretty clearly in context, if you read 1 John, it's believers and everybody else who's not believers. So that one's that one's hard to get around. Now, th- there are ways to get around it. You know, person who holds the unlimited view will have a way of dealing with that. But it's a tough one. Okay? There are statements that the ransom that Christ paid, he paid for all. There's a statement in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, about a false teacher saying that Christ paid for that person, but it's stated that he's going to perish. And it seems to be saying that that guy is going to go to hell. seems to be at least one clear statement that Christ died for someone who is damned, who is non-elect. There's an argument that Scripture tells us to proclaim the gospel to everybody. Now... This leads to something very significant that you have to think about. And again, I'm not saying that there's not a way to deal with this, but if you hold to limited atonement, can you really say that Christ died for you? And mean it. If I happen to be talking to a non-elect person, can I honestly say, Christ died for you? Can I honestly say... God so loved the world and that includes you that he sent his only begotten son so that you might not perish but have everlasting life that's difficult okay there are a number of statements that say that God loves the whole world Um, you know this one kind of goes together with this one that Christ died for the sins of the world now let's talk about this last one the concept of reconciliation. To me, this is the heart of the issue. So turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you can try this on for size and just think about it, okay? I do not delude myself into thinking that I'm changing anybody's mind tonight. And that's really not my purpose. My purpose is to get the data on the table so that we can all think about it more. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 17, for, and forward. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, now catch this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, and now you need to put quotes in if your Bible doesn't have them because you need quotes here, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us or to be a sin a sacrifice for sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him now look at me okay this is adam and this is god before the fall they have a face to face relationship okay it says that god used to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening okay Adam sins against God, he turns his back on God. God looks down and sees that Adam has sinned against him, God turns his back to Adam. Christ comes along, dies on the cross for the sins of the whole world, and the Father turns back to the world. When it it says here that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, I believe that what it is saying is that from God's viewpoint... Christ's work has solved his problem so that he no longer has to turn his back on the world. He turns back. Now, over here, we've got millions of human beings, all of whom have their backs turned to God. This is us, born dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, the reason why this person right here, who's got his back turned to God, who is not one of the elect... The reason he doesn't get saved is because he still has his back to God. Okay? God is facing everybody over here. He's saying, here I am, come to me, whoever will, if you believe, I will save you. That's God the Father's attitude. And over here are millions of people, all of whom have their backs turned toward him. Now, when the Holy Spirit zaps this particular person, this person turns back and says, "Who? There's God. His son died for me. I want to be saved," and the rest, the, the relationship is restored. Okay. Now here's the key: reconciliation. In order for it to occur between God and man, it's just like when I have a fight with me Young. Okay. We have an argument. We go to bed. I roll over and I face the wall that way. She's over here and she's facing the wall that way. We're squinched over on far sides of the bed so that we're not touching each other at all. And if she can't stand it any longer and she decides to be the godly one and she wants to make up first, she turns around and she's facing me and she's waiting for me. And I'm over there. I don't want anything to do with her. She's reconciled to me, but I'm not reconciled to her. Now, until I turn around and say, okay, honey, let's make up, The relationship is not restored. Now, let's suppose that I was the one who sinned against her. It's just like Adam sinning against God. And if she happens to be the one who decides to forgive me first, even though I haven't even said, you're right, I sinned against you, as long as I'm over here tapping my foot saying, I'm not going to make up, guess what? The relationship is never restored. Reconciliation requires both parties to turn back. And this is why unlimited atonement does not result in universal salvation. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that I have proved this, which happens to be my view. (coughs) But I am trying to show that there is a reason, and it's a very biblical reason, why unlimited atonement does not imply universal salvation? Tommy? What, what motivates that guy to want reconciliation? Oh, the Holy Spirit. Only yeah. the Holy Spirit.
1: That's why I said the
0: Holy Spirit has to zap it. But then some resist. I don't think there's any evidence in Scripture that anybody ever, ever successfully resists the Holy Spirit. But, but not everybody over there. Well, no, 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 no. Every every person who's over here who gets zapped turns and believes. What about those who they, don't they go to hell. They're not part of the elect. So, what what causes them to go to hell? The fact that they're sinners and that the sin of Adam is imputed to them. So that they, they did not believe or they did not repent or they did not. Believe. They just keep going where they were. Uh, I'm, it's not It's not resistance, okay? Well, it's not resistance to the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? I, as a person who believe in unlimited atonement, absolutely believe in irresistible grace. Okay? I guess my point would be that you know, we all tend to limit the atonement. Those who can't put it in theological terms, say, you know, you say Christ died for the whole world, and everybody goes, oh, no, no, no. Oh No, we, okay, we, we all we all limit the application of the atonement. The question is not whether the application of the atonement is limited. The question is whether Christ died for the sins of all men. Whether when he was on the cross, God the Father only took the sins of the elect and put them on him. That's the limited atonement view. <coughs> or whether he took all the sins of all men of all time and put them on him. That's the unlimited atonement view system man's system. In other words, God can have everything paid for. Well, well, what what I'm trying to show you is that reconciliation has to be a two-sided thing. Now, God is sovereign even in reconciliation. Okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that he's not. The only people over here who are going to turn back to God are the ones whom God has elected. And the mechanism for that is the zapping of the Holy Spirit, which God only does to those who are elect. But what that shows is that it's possible for their sins to have been born by Christ and yet not to be saved. because they don't get reconciled. And they don't get reconciled because they're not elect. See, again, just think about this, Tommy, and and then we'll quit, okay? Think about the distinction between the extent of the atonement and the application of the atonement, okay? No orthodox Christian believes that the atonement is applied universally, Limited people who hold the limited atonement believe that the sins that were born by Christ were only the sins of the elect. People who believe in unlimited atonement believe that the sins that were born by Christ were all the sins of all people. That's really that's where the difference is. And and you know, I think there are there are people who are confused about the meaning of limited and unlimited atonement. I don't think you are, but I think there are some, some who are. Okay? Let's pray and let's quit and we can talk about this some more next time. Oh, and then I want to ask you about this. right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given us to talk tonight. Pray that you would protect us as we go home, that you would strengthen us through the week ahead, that you would enable us to walk by your Spirit and according to the guidance of your word. We thank you in your Son's name. Amen.